There's a bar in New York City, nestled in among graffiti buildings. Hollowed out and trimmed with scaffolding, it's nothing special. But if you showed up here on a Sunday night back in the 1990s, you'd find the bar transformed. To be honest with you, it was a small dump of a bar. You know, it was like the East Village. You know, it was nothing fancy. It it was very packed. (laughs) It was punk rock. It was the kind of spot where guys smoked cigarettes and laughed over dirty steins of beer, where combat boots stuck to the floor with every step, and high-haired men strutted around with their big, bulging egos. There was the spotlight on the stage, and you could see the DJ to the right dancing away, had their headphones on, and they're tuning up the next record or CD. Everything was electric. Everything was new. Everything was so right. The party was called Club Casanova. Their tagline, where everyone is treated like a king. There, theme nights ruled like their famed Elvis night. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You had the Leather Daddy Elvis, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. All eras of Elvis, from Bugle Boy to Vegas Headliner, performing on the bar stage. And then we all came out and did the final number that was with me. We were all the zombie Elvis. (laughs) Get it? Because he's dead? Hey, the tagline wasn't, where tact is king. At every performance, that little bar in the East Village went nuts. But not literally. These kings were drag kings, after all. And they brought the gender-fucked joy by carving out a much-needed party space. That is, until it all went away. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. Just days before New Year's 1998, Club Casanova, where the drag king Elvises enhoned through the night, was forced to shut down. They stood no chance against a certain New York City politician who seemed hell-bent on cleaning up the city including the parts of it that gave it life. We'll drag it all up after the break. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. New York City in the 90s. The big rotten apple. Where freak flags flew high, the streets smelled like piss, and the city was bursting with energy. You could go out, maybe an art opening, somebody doing a show at this club, somebody else doing a show at that club, or a dance party, or whatever. There was always something to do. That's Mo Fisher. Today, she sports a short pixie cut dyed a purplish magenta. 
Back then, she had the typical Meg Ryan do. Blonde, short, cute. And there was nowhere she'd rather be than among the performance artists of New York City. Just so many connections and crossover between artists, performers, dancers, singers, just everything. It was just so vibrant and rich and alive. Mo moved to the Big Apple in 1993 to study at the New School. She got a waitressing job and an apartment in Chelsea. At the time, she was meeting queer performers and artists that were bending the boundaries of gender and sex like she hadn't seen before. Her mind was expanding. What she thought was dangerous and strange became interesting and liberating. So Mo decided to try something out. I got my hair cut, saved the hair clippings. I went to a thrift store, found a bowling shirt that said Dick on it, and natural extension, Moby Dick. Moby Dick, spelled M-O-B period D-I-C-K, no copyright infringement. Well, call me Ahab. I don't know. I never read the book. I get the pun, though. Moby Dick. Clever. Mo glued the hair clippings in manly places. Face, chest, you name it. Then threw on the bowling shirt, donned some baggy jeans, stuffed her panties with a sock. And when the dick was quaffed, Mo hit the mean streets of New York. I walked down the street on Avenue B, and there were a group of guys on the corner. And I went, oh, shit. And they said, hey. hey. And I went, hey. And I, hey. I passed, basically. Whereas had I walked that same corner as a woman, I would have been catcalled. I would have been harassed some way. My body would have been acknowledged. And I couldn't be in my own space. I went, oh my God, this is a feeling of safety and comfort in my own skin, in my own body, in New York City that I have captured by cross-dressing. I couldn't believe it. Cue the holy light sound effects. Mo had an epiphany. As Moby Dick, she could take up space in a way she never felt she could. And the feeling was intoxicating. It was the first step in a journey to becoming a bona fide drag king. She'd been putting together the look of this male alter ego. The bowling shirt, the hair, even a gold tooth. Next, she needed to feel Mo out in a new venue. One with an audience that was slightly more discerning than the average dude on the street. I went to Meow Mix, the East Village punk rock lesbian bar. I almost couldn't get into the bar because they said, oh, you have to be accompanied by a woman. I was like, I am a woman, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and had a blast. But that was just the tip. From there, her drag turned into an obsession. So she started seeking out shows where women performers dressed up as men, lip synced to their favorite dude songs and acted out campy skits on stage. And if you think it's kind of weird that New York in the mid-90s, of all places, might not have had enough drag spaces for up-and-coming drag kings, well, that's what was happening in the Big Apple at the time. The city had just witnessed the AIDS crisis and the early 90s recession. It had decimated artsy joints because of rising costs and fewer customers. So there was no permanent home for drag kings. There were these one-off gigs, but Mo wanted a dedicated space for the whole community. 
oh, we got to bring everybody together. And when I started, I said, I want to put drag kings on the map. That was my goal. That was my intention. In doing so, to try and make it a safer place for female masculinity. Mo knew there was only one option. Create the space herself. So she got right to it. She found a venue, hired a DJ, printed flyers, and called up her friends to make sure they would promote the shit out of the show. She called it Club Casanova, after the Italian womanizer. And the pop-up party would take place every Sunday fun day. And so, on March 31st, 1996, Club Casanova, where everyone is treated like a king, officially kicked off. The first party was held at a venue in the East Village called the Pyramid Club, but it was a little too cavernous, not the intimate kind of space Mo was looking for. Plus, she was working on a tight budget and needed something cheaper. A few weeks later, she tried a new spot, a divey gay bar in the East Village named Cake. And when we went to Cake, it just solidified. It's like, oh, we're home. It just felt right, it just worked, and it was magic. Week by week, the whole Club Casanova scene came together. Mo started playing underground cult films on loop to set the vibe. The cabaret event attracted all different kinds of people to that little dump of a bar. Queer folks, straight folks, people from across the gender spectrum, no matter how you presented, the drag kings were waiting for you. So you were completely immersed in drag kings. So you would have a drag king who was receiving the money when you would walk in. There were drag king go-go dancers dancing on the bar stage. Drag kings milling about. And I was the drag king host. Then there was a drag king show. Drag kings would get on stage with their favorite dildo sticking out of their pants and perform for the audience. I'm the Reverend Jimmy Johnson. I came here as a special messenger to tell you five people of New York City that the drag king of us called. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Everyone really got into the spirit. People would come in in all different garb and gear and outfits and fun. Couples would come and say, hey, you know, so my partner is trying drag out now. So there was role playing that happened and the, the kind of fun gender exploration and the breaking down of the gender binary. At Club Casanova, freely exploring female masculinity felt safe and it felt special. So the drag king dream was really coming together. Well, except for one thing. Moby Dick had his look down, but his persona, that was still a bit of a white whale. Over the last few months as she was putting the club together, Mo was still trying out different personas for her kingly character. Was Mo a drunken sailor? Uh, hey. Nah, too much scurvy. Grease monkey? Fill her up. Think about the stains. Lounge lizard? How's it going, baby doll? No, just no. None of these were the real Moby Dick. I thought, well, I want to create a monologue. And, okay, what gets on my nerves? So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to be this schmuck of a guy. 
And so I started talking pretty derogatory. Oh, yeah, tits and ass. And, you know, and, and going down to the Baby Doll Lounge, which was the strip joint down near uh, Wall Street. That's when I really honed in on my character, adopting a New York accent. You know, hey, how you doing? Uh, yeah, let me let me tell you, the girls, oh, they are beautiful. I love them. Oh, la, la, la. You know? what, what kinds of things do you like to talk about? Oh, I like to talk about the girls. And, uh, you know, things that get on my fucking nerves, like, you know, the Guliani, the May Guliani, you know, I don't understand that world. So it, a mixture of Rodney Dangerfield and Polly Walnuts, if you will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With the character nailed down, Mo started refining the act. So as I was doing this monologue, I transformed into a human fly. And I lip synced to the song by the Cramps called Human Fly. And the subtext of that was that men like this are pests. So are we gonna eradicate toxic masculinity? I don't know. But what I can do is instead of being an angry woman, become a funny man. And so I can expose toxic masculinity in this comedic way. When the dicks aligned for Mo, Club Casanova hit full stride in the New York art scene. Theme nights were incredibly popular, but there were also original performances from drag kings like Buster Hyman and Labio, Fabio's younger brother. One night, they even celebrated Mo's birthday in the kingliest way possible. The drag kings brought in a toilet, and so I sat on the throne. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody performed. It just clicked. Moby Dick and Club Casanova went from a cute little DIY idea into one of the hottest parties in town. The kings were so good, some patrons left feeling a little unsatisfied. Oh, my gay friends would get very sexually frustrated. They go, oh, God, I just hit on that guy. God, he was a drag king. Oh, he was so cute. And, you know, so it happened every week, all the time. John Waters, in fact, you know, the film director said, Mo, you're a sexual terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. When perhaps the biggest name in transgressive queer cinema starts showing up at your party— you know you're doing something right. Not only that, but Mo says the pop-up party was featured in Penthouse, in a Japanese documentary, and on MTV. Club Casanova was just too cool. And you know what happens when things become too cool? Haters start coming out of the woodwork. And that's what happened about a year into the party's reign, when some unwanted visitors started showing up. So fire marshals would come in in full regalia. I mean, head to toe. There's no fire. There's nothing happening. But these fire marshals weren't looking for fire. They'd come down to enforce a law that was totally obscure and honestly ridiculous. They were looking to see if people were dancing. And dancing is described if you were standing your feet solid on the ground and you're just moving a little bit, maybe shaking your butt a little bit, that's dancing. It's ridiculous. You could be sitting there snorting coke, smoking a fatty, drinking your face up, doing whatever. They didn't care. If you were dancing, you would get a violation. It was absolutely ludicrous. 
A violation could cost up to $1,000 a night. And it wasn't just Club Casanova that drew the fire marshals out of hiding. Lots of other establishments were being targeted too. So who or what had suddenly turned New York City into the town from Footloose? Rudy Giuliani just didn't like nightlife. And he kept boasting this quality of life. And we're like, whose quality of life are you talking about, pal? The fight for the drag kingdom. After the break. Welcome back, kings. Before the break, we were introduced to Moby Dick, the brash-talking pest born on the mean streets of New York in the mid-1990s. Mo brought us into the art scene with Club Casanova, billed as the world's first drag king party. But almost as soon as it got off the ground, the weekly gender-fucked party came under threat. What can we do about the rampant crime that is threatening to destroy our city? That's Rudy Giuliani. Remember, back before he was the face of the Four Seasons total landscaping, he was mayor of New York City. New York is really the center of our civilization. I mean, this is the center of the universe. During the mid-1990s, Giuliani was mostly focused on being tough on crime. This was a mayor who felt that his duty was to clean up the city without realizing that what he considers maybe dirt, that's the city. (laughs) This is Olympia Kazi. She's a longtime New Yorker and a founding member of the New York City Artists Coalition. She says that part of Giuliani's safety campaign was focused on shutting down popular nightlife venues. Luckily for Giuliani, a law already existed that would help him on this campaign. That Footloose law. It's actually called the Cabaret Law. Passed in 1926, supposedly as a way to stop illegal speakeasies during Prohibition, this law banned dancing in places that sold food or drinks unless the establishment had a cabaret license or the performer had a cabaret card. The cabaret license was something that musicians were required to have. And and when we're saying musicians, we're talking about the myths of the jazz, like the super famous people, the Charlie Parkers. Uh, It was clearly racist. Many saw the cabaret law as a way to clamp down on the growing Black nightlife. This was during the Harlem Renaissance, when Black art and culture was flourishing in New York's Harlem neighborhood. Nightclubs and venues thrived, attracting people from all around the world. But for New York's local government, this type of Black success and racial mixing was not a point of pride. Actually, it was seen as dangerous. Remember, this was the 1920s. In the late 60s, the city stopped requiring performers to have cards. But the law that targeted businesses was still on the books. So when Giuliani was looking to clamp down on the city's nightlife at the end of his first term, he already had a weapon. To be fair, there had been several deaths in clubs, from overdoses and violent fights, including the murder of a prominent club performer. But when Giuliani started using the cabaret law again, he went after bars like the ones that hosted Club Casanova. Suddenly, city officials started asking certain businesses to show their cabaret licenses. And these licenses were expensive and extremely difficult to obtain. 
They required multiple fees and approval from multiple agencies. So lots of clubs either couldn't get one or didn't bother trying. That meant many clubs were eventually made to pay hundreds or even thousands of dollars in fines every year. Scenes that had already been impacted by the AIDS crisis and recession were now struggling even more. And then, in the middle of a contentious re-election in 1997, Giuliani really ramped up his quality of life campaign. Mayor Giuliani decimated New York City's nightlife. He had a specific team of nightlife watcher police people who were like specialized on going after that. Olympia and her crew jokingly call them the dance police. Basically people in SWAT gear sewing up when everybody's having fun. People having fun, like Mo and the Kings. Mo says these raids actually happened at Cake, on Club Casanova nights, at least three times. So scared patrons stopped coming. On top of that, the owners of venues, like the ones that hosted the pop-up parties, were also hurt by the raids. I can't remember if it was three or four infringements. They take away your liquor license. So anybody with two infringements, they're like shutting it down. It's a lounge bottle service. In other words, all these artsy party spaces were slowly being fined out of existence, which is exactly what happened to the bar that hosted Club Casanova. On December 28th, 1997, Mo ended the weekly Club Casanova party for good. Though they did have a nice final night. And I just remember walking in, feeling that wave of love where people congratulated, thanked me, and warmly received me. They would say, hey, you know, thanks a lot for doing this. This made a difference in my life. And yeah, I I remember it like it happened right now. Between 1996 and 1998 alone, it's estimated that between 50 and 60 nightclubs were shut down as a result of Giuliani's quality of life campaign. Since then, the club scene has shriveled. In its place, lounges and upscale storefronts have taken over much of New York City. As for Mo, she took the drag show on the road, spreading drag king love around the US and Canada. But they never had a permanent home in New York City again. There has been some change in New York in the last few years. In 2017, Olympia and her team from the New York City Artists Coalition set their sights on the obviously outdated law. To be honest, we were shocked it was still in the books because our position was, you know, dancing is speech. And so I don't need any fucking permission to shake my booty. They won. In 2017, the cabaret law was repealed. Still, the fight for space continues. Whether they're targeted by ancient ordinances like the cabaret law or forced out through increases in rent, queer spaces are constantly fighting to stay afloat. That's especially true for queer communities of color. And when we lose these venues, we lose important voices for progress. It's always the underground the marginalized communities where the change begins. So doing drag, whether it's queen or king, that fucks shit up. And that is what is so gorgeous about drag. I've loved, I've loved hearing this story and hear you sort of describe, 
you know, the, the importance of this kind of performance. Um, because though I, I would not classify myself as a drag king, I did a lot of theater in high school and played a lot of male roles. I think at the time I probably called it cross-dressing, but it felt deeper than just presentation. And one of the roles I played was we did um, Kiss Me Kate, which is, you know, this musical that's basically the taming of the shrew. Um, mm. And I played Petruchio, who sounds a lot like Moby Dick in terms of being very misogynistic, you know, puffing out the chest, speaking derogatorily about women. I think this idea of being obnoxious, the, having the permission to be obnoxious, I think that for me was probably like the most intoxicating part of it because in my life I was, you know, totally aware of my femininity and preserving that and being good and being liked and, you know, um, being the good girl, all of that. Yeah, and then totally getting on stage and being like, fuck all of that. I'm this, like, obnoxious dude who spreads his legs and sings loud and says whatever he wants and, like, insults people to their face and all his friends are laughing at his jokes. And I, like... I'm like looking for that again. Like I'm like looking for an opportunity to feel like that again because that I have not felt that way since. Ramon, <laughs> I, I, I'm hearing a drag king character coming out of yeah, you. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Simon. His name is Simon, right? Simon. Yep. Yep. Simon says. Oh! Wow. Wow. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right, I've got, I'm getting these ideas now. Maybe <laughs> like go sketch out some sketch out some character ideas. Simon says is still a work in progress. Maybe he'll hit stages one day. We'll see. But it's a shame he won't get his shot at Club Casanova or Meow Mix or any of the queer parties and spaces that have been forced to close their doors. Because it's not just the loss of a place to party. It's losing community, connection, a place to gather with others, where you can seek some relief from a world that otherwise invalidates and diminishes you. It's cutting people off from their ability to thrive. In the grand scheme of things, Club Casanova was really only around for a moment. But even still, the impact of that one party is still felt. With that space, Mo and her kings not only communicated that, you know, le freak say chic, but that le freak is often le real, like the real authentic you, just with enough room to breathe. And when you give those freaky parts of yourself some space, you could be amazed by what you'd find. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Julie Carley. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig and Amy Padula. Our associate producer is Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, 
with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. If you want to learn more about Mo, you can follow her on Instagram and Facebook at Mr. Mo B. Dick. And check out her website, dragkinghistory.com, to learn all about the history of female masculinity. Special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampot. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. One of the people who went through one of these raids said when they testified about it, they were like, I thought they found Bin Laden where I was. That's how intense this experience is. <laughs>